us go to God in prayer before we begin this morning. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, friends. We are continuing our sermon series this morning. We've been looking at promises or covenants found in the Bible. This is what our whole Litten series is about, how these covenants between God and God's people mold us and mold our faith, especially during this time of Lent, where we are introspective and really preparing our hearts for Easter morning. The first week of this series, we looked at Noah and Noah's covenant with God, the promise that God would continue to care for all of creation and that we too should in return care for creation. And we are seeing this covenant through a sign uh, or a symbol, the rainbow, of course. Last week, Pastor Paul taught us and walked us through the covenant God made with Abraham and Sarah. God promised them that they would have land and that they would have descendants, not ancestors. They will have those too, but descendants. There's also this bit that Paul left out last week about circumcision, and that is actually the symbol God used to uh, make this covenant with Abraham and Sarah. So if that is of interest of you, I don't know why Paul wouldn't feel comfortable talking about that here, uh, feel free to use the Google and find out some more information on your own, because we are not getting into that today. And today, our covenant focus is going to be on Moses. And really, it's not just a covenant God makes with Moses, but it's actually a covenant God makes with all of the Israelites. Spoiler alert, just like the rainbow and circumcision, the tablet of the Ten Commandments is a sign of the covenant God makes with the Israelites. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I know uh, Meredith and Alec, I mean Moses, skimmed through Moses' life, but I want us to be really confident in Moses' story before we look at these 10 commandments. So we're going to do a quick run through of Moses. If I was still in youth ministry, I would call this part story time with Stephanie. So before we begin, this is a question for all of you, not hypothetical. Don't think of it in your head. Say it out loud. What do you know about Moses? If you're on Facebook with us, feel free to jot it in the comments. I can't read it right now, but I will later. Okay, friends, Moses, what do we know? Oh, I hear crickets chirping, literally. Let my people go. So Moses was the guy who did the thing, Pharaoh and all the plagues. Yes, love it. What about, do we know anything about baby Moses? The basket in the river. Yes, yes, yes. Anything else? Okay, those were all great answers. I know you have more. It's just really awkward yelling them out loud. So I'm going to take us through them. Let's take it from the top. So before the Israelites were in Egypt. Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants, and Sarah's too, were in Canaan. And they stayed in this land of Canaan for 
all of Isaac's life and all of Jake, most of Jacob's life. And it's during the life of Joseph that this seven-year famine happens in Canaan. And it's believed that in exchange for food and in exchange of safety, the Israelites slowly become indebted to the Egyptians. So they move to Egypt to find food, to find safety, to find housing, and slowly they move away from their land of Canaan. And as they enter into Egypt, they become slaves. Pharaoh, who was ruler of the, over Egypt, was constantly in fear of the Israelites. Not because they were super powerful, but because there were a lot of them. And their number was threatening to Pharaoh. He thought that they may come together and overthrow the Egyptian rule. This is where the power of slavery truly lies. The physical labor isn't great. That's a terrible aspect of slavery. But it's also the emotional and spiritual bondage felt by people in slavery. In Exodus, when Moses enters the mix, the Israelites have lived enslaved in Egypt for generations. Scholars in scripture tell us they've lived there for over 400 years. In Moses' time, the Pharaoh who is now in power once again feels threatened by the Israelites, by their numbers. And he says that no Israelite firstborn male baby shall live. That's where we get Moses in the basket. Moses is placed into a basket by his family in an attempt to save his life. And he's rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter and raised as her own. When Moses grows up, he is living in Pharaoh's household and he is out and about and he sees an Egyptian beat an Israelite. And he gets super angry because he knows that that's his true heritage. And so in return, he actually takes the life of the Egyptian. Moses then flees for his life and leaves Egypt. But God talks to Moses through a burning bush, which I'm sure I heard someone out there say, definitely. And through this burning bush, God tells Moses that Moses must go back to Egypt and speak on behalf of the Israelites, that he must free the Israelites from slavery they've endured for over 400 years. Moses is called to put an end to that. Then in Exodus, we get the whole back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh with all of the plagues interspersed. And finally, we see the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And they begin their journey to the promised land, led by Moses through God. Their promised land was Canaan the land of Abraham, the land that all of this started at. So we see this beginning of a beautiful journey to completion. 
Canaan to Egypt to escape famine, then Egypt back to Canaan to escape enslavement. Along the way, the Israelites are human. The Israelites disobey God. And then they come back to God. Then they go away and come back over and over again. The Israelites on this journey also get really hungry and really thirsty, and God provides. God provides manna for them to eat, provides sweet water for them to drink. Moses and the Israelites eventually reach an area called Sinai, and they make it to this mountain, Mount Sinai. That's where our focus for today begins. While God has been the God of the Israelites for many generations, they still don't always follow God's lead. They've been enslaved in Egypt in a culture very different than that of Abraham and Sarah. They've probably adopted many cultural views and practices that are more Egyptian than Israelite. And they're probably counter to God. The Israelites must feel tension as they leave the place they've grown accustomed to, a place while enslaved and outsiders they still have history with. And no matter how promised this new land is, they're still hesitant. They're still missing what they knew. Something different than the wandering in the wilderness they've become accustomed to. Their identities as Israelites, as Hebrews, as Jewish people, they're still being formed. These identities are still being developed. They have histories and stories, of course, like all peoples, but other than circumcision and the recently experienced Passover in Egypt, we don't know a lot about the rule of life the Israelites follow. They must feel pretty conflicted about their true identities and where they stand in God's larger story. We all probably know that feeling. As children and teens, we especially know what it feels like to be pulled in a number of different directions as we work to fine-tune our identities and discover who we really are. Even now, some of us may be sitting here thinking, I'm still trying to find my place in this world. I'm tr still trying to discern who it is God's calling me to be. And although we as Christians have a lot more direction through scripture and through the theologians who have come before us in the histories than these Israelites did, we still know the struggle of trying to find a home for ourselves. This feeling may be exasperated during these times of quarantine and isolation. Here at the church, our senior staff has been reading brilliant book by Brene Brown called Dare to Lead. We're working on fine-tuning our leadership skills. 
And recently, we all came together to do an exercise where we were given a list of over 100 values. It's a little pixelated, but there they all are. That's a lot of values, y'all. And each of us on senior staff had to select two, two from this huge list of our own personal values. Two values that were essential to who we are. As I considered this question and trying to figure out which two fell in line with me, I read a little further and Brene Brown wrote this. As you read these values, you should feel a deep resonance of self-identification with the two you choose. Resist holding on to words that resemble something you've been coached to be, words that have never felt true for you. We all yearn for direction in our lives. We need to know where we stand. We need to know what our values are. And we need to be able to differentiate between our true values and the ones others have coached us to be or pushed upon us without our consent. We need to know what we believe. We don't have to have all of the answers, but we need a starting point. We need to know the truth of who we are and what values dictate our lives. This is where the Israelites find themselves. They don't have a list of 100 values in front of them, but they're escaping from slavery and looking for a new direction. They're yearning for a new way of life. While they are in Sinai, God calls Moses to the very top of the mountain. It is here that we read the first iteration of the Ten Commandments found in scripture. We're going to be in Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17. It sounds long, but I believe we can make it through together. This is a list of all the commandments, so I don't want us to like stop halfway. We're going to get through it together. Hear these words from the book of Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of, everything in, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth of generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it. Not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals or the immigrant who is living with you. 
because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that was just number one through four. Here we go. This is number five. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. God gives the Israelites direction. God gives them a way to live their lives in a new land. It's so easy to have grown up in the church or to hear the words Ten Commandments and think of these as laws or as rules. And they totally can be considered as such, but they're more than that too. I love this take from Reverend Dr. Craig Coker. He's a United Methodist pastor, and he's the current chaplain at the University of Richmond, and he says it better than I ever could. He writes these words, the commandments come as a gift from God to the people of Israel to structure their common life and to shape individual lives that are worthy of the God who has rescued them and with whom they are in covenant. They should not be read as divine finger-wagging or moral hand-slapping. To be bound in covenant with God is to be set free to live as God's people. God's gift of the law to Israel is a means of protecting the community. Now that they are no longer slaves and opening a path to the flourishing of life, both communal and individual. I love this take on the Ten Commandments so much because it entertains the idea that they weren't given to the Israelites as some rules from a strict parent. Instead, they come from a loving creator who is engaging in an active covenant with God's people. The Israelites haven't had a safe space of their own for hundreds of years. They know their claim as descendants of Abraham and Sarah, but God notices that they need a way to order their lives. I've shared with you all before that I really love ordering my life. I love checklists and things being in their space. I'm an organized person and it's really, really hard for me to sit back and relax unless I know everything is done and in its right space. Sometimes that's especially hard when things happen that are outside of my control. When I receive a phone call of bad news or when a snowstorm hits unexpectedly. Being grounded in my values and what I know to be true help anchor me in moments of chaos and disorder. These Ten Commandments are meant to give the Israelites order to their chaos. 
and to bring them into a deeper relationship with God and with one another. It's a covenant between God and between themselves too. Scholars often divide the commandments up this way or the covenant this way. Number one through four are ways to dictate our or the Israelites' relationship with God. So all of these are about God and us, that relationship between the two, ways we are to draw near to our creator, ways we are to live our lives to be in a relationship with God. And then six and 10, or five through 10, excuse me, are how we should live in community with one another. This is about how we should treat each other, how we should live as people of God with the people around us. Jesus actually sums up the Ten Commandments by differentiating between these two things. In the book of Matthew, Pharisees try to test Jesus, and they ask Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus responds that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your soul. That's one through four. That's how we love God. And then Jesus says, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors as you love yourself. That's five through 10. These are the ways we love our neighbor. Jesus goes on to say, all the laws and prophets depend on these two commands. Loving God and loving people. That's the true essence of this covenant. That's the true essence of the Ten Commandments. It gives the Israelites values for living their lives as the people of God. And God knew that they wouldn't always follow these rules perfectly. Actually, a few chapters later in Exodus, it's really interesting. So we just read Exodus 20, where all the rules, the Ten Commandments were given verbally to Moses. It isn't until chapter 34 that Moses receives the tablet that actually has these rules inscribed on them. And so while Moses is up on this mountain for a really long time chatting with God, chatting makes it seem casual talking, having a deep conversation with God. Let's make it what it is. While Moses is up there receiving these commandments, we talked about this in the fall, if you remember, the Israelites are at the bottom of the mountain, and they're not praising God. They're actually worshiping a golden calf that they've just created. These remnants of an Egyptian faith they've adapted even as God is bringing about this new way of life for the people, they're actively looking for another God. God knows that the Israelites will not always follow these rules. God knows that they will not lead lives without mistakes. But still, the commandments are given. Still, this new way of life is gifted in covenant to the Israelites.
John Wesley, the unintended founder of the Methodist Church, he had this idea that followers of Christ could actively work toward perfection. And when I teach confirmation, this is always really scary to students to hear that John Wesley wants them to be perfect. But John Wesley really believed we could actively order our lives in a way that we were constantly striving for perfection, that it actually was an attainable thing. Now, I don't know any perfect people, so I can't say if John Wesley is right or not, but he really believed there was something to striving toward perfection. It is okay for us to have a way of ordering our lives and to still know that we are not going to get it right all of the time. God's covenant with the Israelites was not contingent on them never breaking any of these commandments. If it were, then the covenant would have been broken long, long ago. Instead, the Israelites look for forgiveness, and they admit when they make mistakes, when they fail to do what they've been called to do. The Israelites are known for pushing God away and for God accepting them back time and time again. This is what we're known for, too. We push God away, and then we try to draw near to God again. It's a cycle we go through over and over. The covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai isn't a covenant just for Moses. It's a covenant for all of Israel, and it will stand for generations, and it still stands today. It's a covenant we as Christians see fulfilled through Jesus Christ who came on earth to show us what it looks like to live a life for God. When we are able to look past these Ten Commandments as more than just black or white or as strict rules given to us by a mean parent, we're able to see the beauty that comes with ordering our lives around a creator who loves and who cherishes each of us. This is the covenant. We are not alone. We are not abandoned. The Israelites were so deeply cared for that they were given a new way of life, a new way to love God and to love each other. We too are called to follow this example and continue to love God and to love people. May it be so. Amen.